Our scripture today probably encompasses one of the most beautiful and hope-filled promises of God's Word. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. It's a wonderful thing to, be look, to look forward to, the second coming of Jesus. And you know, we've talked the last few weeks, we've talked last week about um, the, the change from the observance of the Sabbath to the observance of Sunday. We talked before that about how um, tradition took the place of God's Word in the church, about how philosophy and complicated interpretations of God's Word led, led it to be a thing that only the clergy, the professionals could study, and lay people were prohibited from having the Word of God. The Word wasn't even translated into their own languages that they were able to read or to, or to speak. And so, there, there came in the church, in church history, a, a forgetting of the truth of God's Word. And one of those truths we looked at last week in detail was the was the Sabbath, the Seventh-day Sabbath. But there were other truths that were forgotten. And one of the truths, believe it or not, one of the truths that were forgotten was the truth on the second coming of Jesus. Can you imagine such a, a, a wonderful truth being lost sight of? That's what happens when we don't spend time in the Word of God. The truth of the second coming was lost sight of. What the, the, the apostles had called the blessed hope, what had animated their lives, what had given them hope for the future, what had given them joy in living their lives even of suffering or persecution was the, was the promise that Jesus gave here in John 14 that He would come again. Just as we had seen Him go into heaven, we're going to see Him come again. He's going to come again. Oh, the early church was excited. They were hopeful. They were anticipating the second coming of Jesus. In fact, some of them were convinced that it was going to happen right away, and Paul, in, in his letters to the Thessalonians, had to sort of dampen their hopes a little bit, because there's going to be other prophecies fulfilled, he said, before the second coming. But they were excited. They were excited that, that, that Jesus was going to come again. Why do you think they were excited that Jesus was going to come again? I believe the main reason that the early Christians talked so much about the second coming. I believe the main reason they hoped for and looked forward to the second coming so much was simply because they loved Jesus. That's why. They were excited about the second coming because the one whom they loved would be returning. The one whom they were separated from would come again. You know, when you love someone, it's hard to be away from them. Talk to Michael about that after the service. When you love someone, it's hard to be away from them. I remember when I was dating Jane long distance. It's hard to be away from someone you love. It's even hard for her to be way up there in the balcony and me way down here, you know? <laughs> when you're separated, it's hard to be away from the person you love. And the disciples were so excited about the second coming because they loved Jesus. And they wanted Jesus to return. They couldn't wait till he would be here and they would be with him as Jesus promised here in these passages. And yet this truth was lost sight of. Many different theories came about. <laughs> Mostly it was just forgotten. But we, we, we know that the, the Reformation brought a revival, the study of God's Word. And so they read John 14. People knew there was going to be a second coming, but there, there came confusion about how that would take place or when it would take place. And it always just seemed to be some nebulous, far in the distant future. And some of the theologies that were developed helped to foster this, this uh this sort of pie-in-the-sky view of the second coming. But there came a time in, in 
Christian history, even after the Reformation, when the second coming would come to prominence in the minds of the people once again. And this was during the Second Great Awakening. We're going to take, a t- take some time to look at this and how it took place today. We're going to be discovering how this truth was rediscovered, and um, we're going to be looking in our Bibles at some of the things that brought about this uh, rediscovery and this great awakening. But before we begin, I would just invite you to bow your heads with me for an additional word of prayer. Father in heaven, today we're thankful that you've given us your word. Lord, what a privilege we have to live in a day when your word is, is, is free to be read by, by individuals such as us. Lord, we are just so thankful that we can, that we can open your word today in freedom in peace and safety. We pray that we would be led by your Spirit as we study its pages, that we might understand something of your plan for us, of your plan to return. And as we look at sacred history, as we look at how you have worked in the past to bring light hidden by ages of neglect to to the understanding of your people once again. We pray that you would guide us, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Second Great Awakening was a revival that took place among many different denominations. It was during the early 19th century, late 1800s, and early 19, uh, early, sorry, late 1700s and early 1800s that this Great Awakening took place, beginning around 1790. Keep in mind this date when the Second Awakening was happening. So around 1790, the, the, it would gain the moment, momentum by uh, 1800 and the early 1800s, 1820, 1830. Probably its peak was around 1830, 1840. And uh, membership during this time rose rapidly among Methodists and Baptist congregations especially, whose preachers led the movement. Now, why was this movement happening then? That's what we're going, to do. we're going to sort of explore for just a minute, and we're going to see where it led. But why was it happening? Well, one of the reasons that it was taking place was there was this view of the second coming called post-millennialism. Now, post-millennialism is a big word that simply means people believed that Jesus was going to come back after a millennium of peace. Now, you understand, you've probably read in Revelation chapter 20, that's where we get the understanding of the millennium, Um, you've probably read about the millennium, and you and I may have a different understanding of that. We, we, I believe, I'm a premillennialist. That means I believe that Jesus actually comes back before the millennium, before the thousand years of peace, the second coming. We're not going to go into great detail about that teaching, but that's what I believe. But it was very common in the churches, the mainstream churches of the day, this idea of post-millennialism, and that is that Jesus was going to return after the uh, millennium. Now, what does that tell you? What it tells you, if you believe in it, you believe that Jesus isn't going to come back for at least a thousand years, right? Unless you believe that we've already entered the millennium, the millennium of peace that's described in, in Revelation chapter 20, Unless you believe that, it's already begun. It's going to be at least a thousand years until Jesus comes again. Now, that's a long time. It's not going to be in our lifetime. It's not something we really need to worry about. But there were a number of reasons why post-millennialism actually began to foster a revival. And a couple of those reasons were that, well, for one thing, in America, 
it seemed like an ideal place to begin the millennium. Does this make sense? I mean, you had a new country, sort of this Edenic type of a, a country, Americanism, that was this ideal nation, at least in the minds of many Americans. This was a, you could go and, and start your own country, your own country, your own state, your own community. You could have your own churches, and you could, you could have a sort of a, an ideal situation to begin a peaceful existence, to begin the millennium. In fact, this actually led to a movement which was known as the Restoration Movement. The, restora uh, the Restoration Movement was the idea of restoring a primitive idea of Christianity to the uh, U.S. population. We wanted a purer Christianity without the elaborate hierarchy and, and, uh, and po political uh, intrigue that had dominated the church of Europe. In America, we could have that. In America, we didn't have a state church. In America, we didn't have these, uh, these well-established churches. We could have more of a congregational uh, situation where people could have the faith that they wanted to have. Um, so a number of groups came up, the Mormons, uh, the Shakers, as well as this was very commonly viewed among some of the Methodists and some of the Baptists as well. We were going to have a, a, a movement that is a pure Christianity. And what better place to have it than here in America, where the sky is the limit. The uh, tradition-bound European churches seemed out of place in this new setting. And so a primitive faith based on the Bible alone promised a way to sidestep the competing claims of many denominations uh, available. Congregations wanted to find the assurance of being right without having a national church to tell them what they believe. And so this sort of grew in a revival across America of people who were trying to get back to the Word of God, all good things, right? Trying to get back to the Word of God, trying to have an ideal uh, religion and also have an ideal country. At the same time, we have a second Advent movement beginning. Now these two, these two sort of components that grew out of the uh, Second Great Awakening, they're in somewhat in contradiction. Because the restoration movement, not, not the idea of having ideal setting or ideal country or ideal religion, that's all, both, both groups would agree with that. But the restoration movement was excited, they were getting excited because it was commonly believed among American Christians that this was the beginning of the new millennium. You understand? The idea that we could bring in a religion that was free from hierarchy and elaborate politics and no state church and we could follow the Bible and the Bible only. If we could do this in a new country where, where we could set up our own laws and our own values and our own, our own ethics, this was widely viewed as hope that there would be the new millennium established soon, that there would be a millennium of peace established on the earth. At the same time, there was a great second Advent movement that was also coming out of the Second Great Awakening. And the Advent movement began at the same time as the Restoration movement, but with a premillennialist theology. That is, the Adventists believed that Jesus was going to come before the millennium. It was not, the, the idea of a pure church did not hearken to the idea of the millennium beginning hearken to the idea of Jesus coming again soon. There's a different focus there. So the, the Advent movement began with a premillennial theology and a greater focus on eschatology or end-time 
prophecies. And I want us to look at one of the, or several of the reasons why uh, William Miller and the other, um, the other great Second Advent movement preachers began to say that Jesus was coming again, and Jesus was coming again soon. We're going to look at a series of Bible verses here that are parallel passages that teach the same thing, and we're going to see how it's, it's found in all of the three uh, synoptic Gospels, and it's also the Gospel John doesn't record it, but the writer John does record it in the book of Revelation. So let's start in Matthew, Matthew chapter 24, and we're remembering here that truths are being discovered as the Protestant Reformation has continued to grow, as uh, people have continued to study the Bible over the last couple hundred years since the Reformation, new truths are being discovered all the time, and this would be a rediscovery of the teaching of the Scriptures about the second coming. Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to read here verse 29. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 29. Now this is what it says. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then, verse 30, it says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, this verse begins, this passage begins with a, a, a time anchor. It says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. What is he talking about? Let's back up just a little bit here. And um, if, we, if we look back here, when he talks about the great tribulation beginning in verse 15, he, he, he continues, well, well, we'll start in verse 21 reading it. Matthew 24 and verse 21. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. What great tribulation is that speaking of? I believe, and we don't have time to go into detail, we're going to in a couple, a couple upcoming sermons, we're going to be looking at, uh, at, at how these prophecies came to be understood. So we're going to look at those prophecies. But I believe that this great tribulation that Jesus is referring to is a tribulation predicted by the, apostle, by the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. Now, it's not only predicted in Daniel chapter 7. This time period, this period of persecution, tribulation for the church, would be uh, prophesied in six different places. Of all of the time prophecies, this is the most frequently mentioned. Uh, we have it in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, Daniel 12, verse 7, Revelation 11, 3, Revelation 12, 6, Revelation 12, 14, and Revelation 13, 5. And you'll notice that they are, they, they are found in different, uh, different iterations. You have uh, the same period being talked about as 1260 days. You have it being talked about as three and a half years. And you have it being talked about as 42 months. Remember that a Jewish year had 360 days, a Jewish month had 30, 30 days. So um, these are all the same time period, three and a half years, 42 months, and uh, 1,260 days. It's all talking about the same time period. This was predicted that there would be a time of persecution. Now, without, without going into the details of this study, we'll look at that a little later, um, we believe that this time period began when the church, the church, the Christian church, came to exercise absolute civil power, control the state, in 538 A.D. 
Now, 538 A.D., um, this is uh, when the last of the three tribes or nations that had resisted the, uh, the bishops of Rome's civil leadership was uprooted. Now, 1260 years brings us down to the year 1798, right? 1798. Now, remember, when is the, when is the Great Second Awakening beginning? 1790, right? So it's about this same time as the prophecy had predicted there would be a great, uh, there would be the end of, of tribulation. Now, notice in 1798, we won't go into details today, but we believe this was very notably fulfilled when during the uh, aftermath of the French Revolution, when it was proclaimed that there was no God, Napoleon's general, uh, Berthier, marched onto the city of Rome, and he found the bishop of Rome um, hiding in, uh, in St. Peter's Basilica, actually in the Sistine Chapel. And um, they, they actually went in with his soldiers noisily clanging into this, this church, echoing throughout its chambers, and they arrested or captured the Pope and took him into exile where he would die in exile, France declaring that there was no God, there is no church. It pretty dramatically emphasized the fact that the church no longer had absolute control of the state, didn't it, when this took place. But notice what Jesus said. When talking about this great tribulation, he said, except those days should be shortened, talking about the tribulation, no flesh would be saved. We actually find prior to 1798, most of the persecution of God's people and the truth coming to an end, at least the violent persecution. Why would that be? One of the main reasons is, well, two main reasons. One is because of the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation created states in Europe that were Protestant and where freedom of, of conscience was at least to a degree protected, right? And so if you were no longer um, willing to attend Mass, which previously had at times been punished by death, you could move to a part of Europe where there was freedom to not have to do such things, right? And also during this time, we have the beginning of a new country, a country across the Atlantic, a country which promised freedom and opportunity for anyone, and many, many persecuted individuals were making their ways, not just to, not to just the United States, but many of them to the United States. And so in actual fact and practice, persecution had come to an end prior to the actual 1798. Sometime 50, 60, 70 years earlier, uh, there were almost no more people being burned at the stake and being persecuted by the church for their beliefs. Does this make sense? Jesus said, except those days had been shortened, no flesh would be saved. That is to say, if it hadn't been for these Protestant states, if it hadn't been for America relief, opening a relief valve for these persecuted individuals to come to, if it hadn't been for those days being shortened, God's truth and those who believed it might have been completely exterminated from the face of the earth. That's what Jesus said. Um, that um, those days would be shortened, that there might not be um, no flesh, otherwise no flesh would be saved. And now, now look again at verse 29. When Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, 
The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give her light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the man. So you have this sequence of events. You have the tribulation, then you have signs in the sun, the moon, the stars, and then the sign of the Son of Man, the second coming, right? Now I want us to go back to our scriptures. Let's look now in the gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 13, and we're going to read verses 24 and 25. Mark chapter 13 and verses 24 and 25. And when you're there, you can say amen. Mark 13, verses 24 and 25. And this is what um, Jesus' words are as recorded by Mark. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Do you see a pattern here? The same exact sequence of events. Tribulation, sun, moon, stars. Verse 26, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send His angels and gather together His elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of heaven to the far, uh, of the earth, to the farthest part of heaven. Look with me now to Luke. Luke chapter 21. And we're going to see how Luke records this. Um, it should come as no surprise to you that the gospel writers are in harmony on this record of Jesus' teachings. Uh, you might think that it's not important. You know, um, you're just sort of remembering years later what Jesus is saying. Listen, these, these writers were inspired by the Holy Spirit to record this, the words of Jesus. And it's not just coincidence that they have the same words in the same, or the same events, not exactly the same words, but the same idea, the same sequence, the same order of events. Luke chapter 21, verses 25 and 26, there will be signs. And by the way, previous, you can read verse 23, there will be the tribulation and so forth. Verse 25, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when, you, when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Isn't that exciting, friends? Oh, listen, Luke is saying this is, some, this is going to be a time to be alive. This is going to be an exciting time. When you begin to see these things happen, uh, look up, lift up your heads. Your redemption draws near. Let's learn, look now at John's account of this in Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, and you're going to see the same order with the addition of one event. Revelation chapter 6 and verses 13 and, uh, 12 and 13. Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. And by the way, verse 11 is describing the persecution and even the martyrdom of God's people during this time of great tribulation. Revelation chapter 6, beginning with verse 12, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men, the commanders and the mighty men and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, 
Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? You notice the contrast between the two groups of people? The one who are not prepared to see Jesus coming and the ones who are looking up and lifting up their heads and excited their redemption is drawing nigh. And this group who is saying to the rocks and the mountains, look, we'd rather die any other way than this way. Uh, what a contrast. But the same sequence of events. Tribulation, and John here adds a new, a, new, uh, a new event. There'll be a great earthquake, he says. And then signs in the sun, the sun not giving its light, the moon turned to blood, and the stars falling from heaven, and then the second coming. Four different gospel presentations, four different prophecies, all giving the same sequence of events in the same order. Tribulation, Signs in the sun, the moon, the stars, second coming. Now, this is one of the reasons the second great awakening took place. Because as the Bible is now given to the people, general people, as it's now available in English, it's available in French, it's available in German, it's available in the common tongue of the people, they began studying the Bible and they began recognizing, wait a minute, some of these things are happening. Some of these signs are coming about. They're taking place. By the way, Joel chapter 2 and verse 10. Let's just look there real quickly before we move on. Joel chapter 2 and verse 10. We need to move quickly here. Joel 2 and verse 10, and this is uh, the prophecy that uh, Revelation is quoting from when it says, The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. And he goes on and he says, it talks about the coming of the day of the Lord, a prophecy of the second coming. So men and women, scholars, religionists, lay people, teachers, preachers, they're all reading their Bibles. They're, they're, they're becoming familiar with these passages, these verses. And then what do you know? These things actually began to happen. They began to see some of these things actually taking place. First of all, we see the Lisbon earthquake, November 1, 1755. Now, it's not that there weren't earthquakes before, but this is by far one of the most dramatic and disastrous earthquakes that would come to the European continent. It is estimated to be, have been an eight and a half to nine on the Richter scale. Now, you understand that every, every decimal, every tenth on the Richter scale is a power of 10 as the matter of force, right? So, so an 8.6 is 10 times stronger than an 8.5. You understand that, right? You want to know how big a 7 is? A 7.1 is 10 times bigger. 7.2 is 10 times bigger than a 7.1. When you, by the time you get an 8.5 and, and 9, you're talking about an, a, a, a monumental earthquake of massive proportions. And um, the 1755 earthquake, also known as the Great Lisbon Earthquake, um, occurred on the 1st of November, 1755. It was the holiday, the Catholic holiday, All Saints Day. And it happened about 9.40 in the morning. The earthquake was followed by fires and a tsunami, which almost totally destroyed Lisbon and the adjoining areas. And... Uh, uh, estimates place a toll in Lisbon alone, the death toll, between 10,000 and 100,000, making it one of the deadliest earthquakes in history. Um, it is, it was, it said that uh, survivors saw the sea begin to, re, um, uh, to recede, and because the city was burning, they actually rushed out into the open space around the docks and in front of the docks um, to try to get away from the fire, not realizing that a tsunami was 
was soon to come. About 40 minutes after the earthquake, an enormous tsunami engulfed the harbor in downtown, um, rushing up the, the river so fast that several people riding on horseback were forced to gallop as fast as possible for the, uh, for the fear of being carried away. Um, flames raged in the city of Lisbon for five days after the earthquake. Shocks from the earthquake were felt throughout Europe as far as Finland and North Africa, and according to some sources, even in Greenland and in the Caribbean. Tsunamis as tall as 20 meters at 65 feet swept the coast of North Africa and struck Martinique and Barbados across the Atlantic. A three-meter, 10-foot tsunami hit Cornwall on the English coast. Um, so this was a massive earthquake that caused great devastation, great destruction. Now, by itself, we wouldn't really pay much attention to that. I mean, not as far as a fulfillment of prophecy. But you understand, men and women everywhere are reading their Bibles now, and they're reading these prophecies, and what came next was even more surprising. <clears throat> there would be a dark day and night, May 19, 1780. Uh, this was... Uh, from about 11 a.m. to 11 p.m., darkness all over the northeastern portion of the United States. It, it said that as, as uh, men went out in the fields to work, as the cows went out in the pasture to graze, and the, kit, the, the chickens went out into the, into the barnyard, uh, it was a normal, regular day, and then it began to get dark. So that before noon, the cows had come back confused, the chickens were back in their roost, and men were wondering if the world was going to end. Now, I've been, I've been in a complete solar eclipse. I didn't think it would be quite as dramatic as it was. Um, I was in Ghana, actually, at the time, in West Africa, and um, we were building a church on that day, on that morning, we were working construction, and, and uh, about 9 o'clock in the morning, it started to look a little bit twilighty and sort of, and you wouldn't, I, it's just weird in the middle of the day for it to become so dark that you can't see and cars have to drive with their headlights on. But imagine if, I mean, we all knew that was happening. Everyone knew there was going to be a complete eclipse. Everyone had bought these little glasses with the pinhole holes in them, you know, so you can see safely or whatever. Um, at least all the people around, around the community we were in, they were loaning them to us. <laughs> Look at, and I got some pictures of it. But the fact is, if you didn't know this was going to happen, and it didn't just last for 10 minutes like a solar eclipse lasts, it lasted for hours. The rest of the day was dark. Can you imagine what you would think? Well, you would think that those who had read these prophecies, these passages, might reflect back upon them and say, wow, maybe this is a fulfillment of that prophecy. No satisfactory reason has ever been assigned for this darkness, no Webster um, said. Sir John Frederick William Herschel, an astronomer, said the dark day in North America was one of those wonderful phenomena of nature which will always be read of with interest, but which philosophy is at a loss to explain. If every luminous body in the universe had been struck out of existence, the darkness could not have been more complete. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. This was followed a number of years later, about 40 years later again, by a massive Leonid shower on November 13, 1833. This was a brilliant meteor shower that covered all of North America. Jan Loughborough said, wherever observed, it was the same continuous shower of stars falling as 
thick as snowflakes in a snowstorm. It is said, it had been described that if you, if you, were, if you stepped outside on that night during that show, uh, star, uh, falling of the stars, that Leonid shower, you could read a newspaper only by the light of the falling stars, shooting stars. That's how bright the night became. In fact, um, we have this uh, story from um, Abe Lincoln. Abe Lincoln was actually boarding in a home in 1833, and um, he, was, he was boarding in a deacon's home. And we know the story, we know about it, because Lincoln later was asked by some of his... He was actually at a banker's meeting during the Civil War, and the bankers were asking him if he thought, if he thought the Union would survive. And um, bank, uh, Abe Lincoln had a knack for telling stories, and he said, you know... Back when I was a young lawyer, I boarded with a deacon. Um, he was the deacon of the Presbyterian Church in a little town there. And one night, I, I, I was awakened by a pounding at my door, and the deacon was shouting. He was saying, Abe, Abe, get up. It's the end of the world. And he said, I, I went out. I went outside and I looked at the showering of falling stars, and it was indeed unsettling. He said, but behind that, that display of falling stars, I could see the constellations that I knew so well. They were still there. They were still where I expected them. And I realized the world wasn't going to come to an end tonight. And he used that as an illustration of why he believed that the Union was going to survive as well. I thought that was a pretty neat illustration, wasn't it? Behind these signs, we have something even more dependable, don't we? We have the Word of God. And um, here we have uh, Abraham Lincoln's account of it. Um, it was, it was a, 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 an alarming event for some, exciting for others, and it led again to a renewed study of the Word of God. Um, now we have had, by the way, after the dark day, on that night, the moon came up red as blood. And so now, to, for those living in the 1830s, and this is one explanation of why they, the, the Second Great Awakening peaked around the 1830s, they've now seen, they've now seen in, the, with their own eyes, part of this fulfillment taking place. That Jesus had said would happen. There would be a great earthquake. There would be a, a, a dark day. There, the new moon would be turned to blood. There would be a falling of the stars. And the next thing to be expected would be the second coming. And so this is driving men and women to study their Bibles. From the Connecticut Observer newspaper of, of November 25, 1833. As the, the editor of The Old Countryman makes a very serious matter of the falling stars... He said, we pronounce the rain of fire, which we saw on Wednesday morning last, an awful type, a sure forerunner, a merciful sign of that great and dreadful day which the inhabitants of the earth will witness when the sixth seal shall be opened. Revelation chapter 6, we read a minute ago. The time is just at hand, described not only in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, and a more correct picture of a fig tree casting its fruit when blown by a mighty wind, it was not possible to behold. Thomas Burnett had written about this in 1697, long before this event took place. 
Commenting on it in his commentary on Matthew 24, verse 29, no doubt there will be all sorts of fiery meteors at that time, and amongst others those called falling stars, which though they are not considerable singly, yet if they were multiplied in great numbers, falling, as the prophet says, as leaves from the vine or figs from the fig tree, they would make an astonishing sight. We need not look upon these things as hyperbolical and poetic strains, but as barefaced prophecies and things that will literally come to pass. Do you understand what Bible students were expecting? They're expecting just that to happen. And when they saw it happen, they saw it as a direct fulfillment of prophecy. 1697, uh, Thomas Burnett had written this uh, from an understanding of prophecy. Dennis. Uh, Dennison Olmsted, professor at Yale University and one of the most noted meteorologists of the 19th century, he said the following, The extent of the shower of 1833 was such as to cover no inconsiderable part of the earth's surface, from the middle of the Atlantic on the east to the Pacific on the west, from the northern coast of South America to undefined regions among the British possessions on the north. The exhibition of shooting stars was not only visible, but everywhere presented the same appearance, a massive display. And by the way, some people say, well, it's not fair that those signs would have just been given in America. And um, what we do see is these signs being taking place in places where the Bible was being studied, where people were expecting it. And it wasn't just in America. It was only in America, the Americas, on, um, the, on, on November 13. But we'll see in just a minute. It was actually, there was a separate shower that took place viewed in Europe. Uh, professor continues, those who were so fortunate as to witness the exhibition of shooting stars in the morning of November 13, 1833, probably saw the greatest display of celestial fireworks that has ever been seen since the creation of the world, or at least within the annals covered by the pages of history. And on, on November 25, 12 days later, there was a fine display of falling of stars on the continent of Europe. In Ministerburg, Silesia, uh, which is today Poland and Czech Republic, stars fell like a rain of fire. With them fell balls of fire, making the night so light that the people thought the houses near them must be on fire. At the same time, in Prince, Austria, there was a falling of stars that covered a space of over 500 square miles. It was described by some as streams of fire coming down from heaven. Horses were frightened by it and fell to the ground. Many people were made sick through fear. This is from Leonard Heinrich Kelber, um, book published in 1835 in Stuttgart, Germany. Um, so this is a description of what is happening around the world. People are expecting these prophecies to take place before the second coming, and lo and behold, they are taking place around the world. And so um, men like William Miller, we won't take much time to talk about him today, but men like William Miller were, stud William Miller were studying these prophecies, and they were looking at these things that were happening, and they were becoming convinced that the end of the world could be very near. Now, we're going to look at a couple of other factors that would have precipitated this great awakening that was taking place at the time, and one of those other factors was the moral conditions. Now, we're talking, we're backing up a bit now to around 1790 when the Great Second Awakening would have begun, and around 1790, you have moral conditions in the United States that were not what we as Americans today generally think of or are led to believe. I don't know about you. How many of you when you think of early America, you just think they were all just Bible-believing, church-going, faith-praying people. You know, just like they, they landed off the Mayflower, they got off the boat, the first thing they did was pray, and they prayed ever since. And it's only today that we've wandered from God. Do you sort of get that idea when you talk about American history? Well, really nothing could be further from the truth. 
Because America was, it's, it's true people came on the Mayflower, they prayed. It's true we had colonies who were very religious. There are people who came here to escape persecution. But there's also the great impact of deism and some of the secularism that was impacting America. Let me give you some statistics, okay? I think you'll find this interesting, some statistics. In New England, you had the most religious people. The New England colonies had the most religious people. This is about 1790 we're talking about. And in New England, about one out of eight attended church. One out of eight, 1790. New England. And that's the best. It goes down from there. If we look at the middle colonies, which were a lot of German and Scotch-Irish, about one out of 15 attended church. About one out of 15. And when you come down to the southern colonies, which today we sort of refer to the south as the Bible Belt, right? In the southern colonies, about one out of 20 were churchgoers. And you remember that as people who were reading their Bibles would look at their Bibles and they would say, well, Jesus said as it was in the days of Noah, as it was in the days of Lot, right? Um, love of many would wax cold. There were many people who saw not only the signs that are happening in the stars, the sun, moon, and the stars, they were also looking at society around them and saying, this is a sign of the end. We have a, a moral, uh, moral conditions in society that match what Jesus said would it would be at the time of the end. Now, it's interesting to note, by the end of the Second Great Awakening, by the end of the Second Great Awakening, so we're talking about 50 years, by the end of the Second Great Awakening, 75% of all Americans would be church-going. That's why they call it the Great Awakening. It was a tremendous shift in a generation or two from... from from very little interest in spiritual things, from very structured, hierarchical churches that had been brought with them from Europe, to a very personal spirituality, um, a huge growth among more congregationalist-type churches, and a very personal, practical religion being practiced by the end of the Great Awakening. So a huge transition would take place, but we can't neglect the fact that the beginning of the Second Great Awakening, this was viewed as one of the signs of the times, as one of the reasons they believed Jesus was coming soon. But I think perhaps the most significant reason that uh, this Great Awakening took place and out of it would be born the great Second Advent movement and a new understanding of end-time events and eschatology was that the book of Daniel would be unsealed. Now, we're not going to go there because we're short on time, but in Daniel chapter 11, verse 35... Daniel 11 is once again a parallel prophecy describing the, the history of the world. Daniel 10 through 12 does. And Daniel chapter 11 talks about the persecution, and he talks, about, he talks about the end of the persecution marking the beginning of the time of the end. Okay? That's Daniel chapter 11 and verse 35. Well, a few verses later, in Daniel 12 verse 4, it says, Daniel shut up the words of this prophecy of this book, it's for many days. It's going to be opened, unsealed, at the time of the end. You understand? So if we compare Daniel chapter 11, 35, saying the time of the end is the end of this 1260 years, and we compare Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4, saying at the time of the end, the book of Daniel is going to be unsealed, 
all of a sudden we realize that after the 1790s, 1798 particularly, the book of Daniel is going to be understood in a new and, and widespread way. And indeed, this is what happened. The book of Daniel being unsealed, there was a great awakening in the study of Bible prophecy. Both sides of the Atlantic, in Europe as well as in the Americas, people were studying the book of Daniel. They are studying the book of Revelation. And they were coming to an understanding of what these prophecies meant. Um, uh, Leroy Froome, Dr. Froome, in The Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers, that, that uh, authoritative set, set on the history of prophetic understanding, said the following, nothing comparable to it in sheer numbers had appeared before. And this in itself became a recognized sign of the times and came to be looked upon as a fulfillment of prophecy. As people began studying the Bible, I, I want to show you a little bit. This is from Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers, and I know it's a little hard to see, but I don't think I've ever shared this with you. I want to share with you what, what, um, a, a chart of those who were studying the prophecies. It's, 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 there's no doubt historically that there were more people studying and writing about the prophecies over the next 50 years of the Great Awakening, between 1790 and, and 1840. There were more things written about prophecy than had been written in the, in the previous 1,500 years, without a doubt. Um, each of these lines represents a person. You may, not, may or may not be able to read it. And this is, you see their lifespan, beginning around 1798. That's when we would see the book of Daniel being unsealed. Um, these dots on their line represent each of the major books or major articles written about end-time prophecy. And so what you see here is um, a, a compilation of the different individuals who began studying prophecy, and not only studying it, they're writing about it, and they're publishing their works. And so you have, um, you have a, an explosion of them. You see it, it largely begins in the 1820s and 1830s. You start seeing all these dots showing up. And it's exploding around the early 1840s. A huge explosion of the study of prophecy. Unless you think that's a lot of them in the 1800s, it would have been a lot of authors, the chart continues. And it continues. This is a massive undertaking of the study of prophecy that had not been seen previously until this time. You see, the book of Daniel was now being studied in a way that it had not been studied and, and written about and shared, and, and they were communicating from one side of the Atlantic to the other side of the Atlantic. Sometimes they were writing things without realizing that someone else had written on the same thing and come to the same conclusion. The reason was because God, has, God was awakening His people to an understanding that the end was coming soon. These signs had been given for a reason. And as they, as, they, as they saw the signs and the sun, the moon, the stars, as they saw the moral conditions of society, as they began studying the prophecies, those things began driving them to the study of the prophecy. The book of Daniel now was unsealed, and they were going to come to new understandings of God's plan for His people, God's plan for this earth that had, not, that had been lost sight of for centuries and even millennia. Oh, my friends... The good news was they discovered that Jesus hadn't been kidding. It wasn't just a suggestion or a good idea. When Jesus said in John chapter 14, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. These Bible students began to be convinced his words were true. He was going to come again. And that coming could be very soon.
I believe, friends, that coming is very soon. I believe it's much closer than when these Bible students began studying. And over the next few sermons, we're going to be looking at, we're going to be looking at how they came to their understandings, why it's been so long, and how we can explain that, and how they began to discover not only the truth about the second coming, but other truths they were led to one after another as they came out of the great second awakening. But today, I'm just thankful, aren't you? I'm thankful that we have the promise of a Savior. I'm thankful that Savior's promise is that He's going to come again. And there's going to be a day in which there's a new heavens and a new earth. He's going to be in charge during the great millennium. It's not our job to make it a perfect world. It's our job to make our hearts right with Him. And He's going to come and He's going to take us home to be with Him. That where He is, there we will be also. Let's pray. Father in heaven, today we just want to thank you that you've given to us such a wonderful promise, the promise of your return. We thank you that as we looked at these Bible prophecies, we could see, why, we could see how they were so significant to those living in that day. And Father, we believe you have a message for our time too. We believe you have a message for us. And so as we continue to pull back the the pages of history as we continue to look into your word, I just want to pray that you'll help us to get excited. Not because we know Jesus is coming soon and we're afraid, so we better get ready. No, Lord, help us to be so in love with you, like the early church, that we just can't wait for you to come. We can't wait to be reunited with you. And so the second coming will be our blessed hope. It will be our fervent hope. It will be that which we look forward to and which animates our existence, our decisions every day. Thank you for these words. Thank you for the prophecies and the way we can see them fulfilled. Thank you for the promise that you're coming again. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.